All right. So if you're new or visiting this morning, you know how when you go to a church and you show up and you wonder what they'll be talking about and you cringe in your spirit and, I, and you say, I hope they're not talking about giving, right? Bingo, you hit it. If you're new or visiting this morning, you have walked in right during this service. That's exactly what we're going to talk about. And uh, that's where we're rolling. So uh, I just wanted to give you the heads up on that. And uh, there are few subjects as touchy uh, in church as the issue of money and giving, right? Now, the famous quote you hear all the time is what? All they want is my money, right? And uh, or uh, another way, it's all they preach is money. And obviously, there are some groups and some people who have done a tremendous disservice to the church as a whole um, with some of the scandals and some of the things and some of the ripoffs that exist out there. So I understand that when I walk into a message like this, I'm bucking against that trend. But, uh, you know, the question is to how to answer that. And here's my response to that. Let's get something straight. Everybody wants your money. Okay? <laughs> It isn't just the church. Everybody wants your money. I mean, think it through. How many causes, religious or secular, how many sports teams, how many PTA groups, how many activities, how many hobbies, how many investment groups, etc., etc., etc.? If those aren't enough, how about your children? Everybody wants your money. And so it's not an issue of, you know, is, is your money wanted? More it's an issue of priorities and where are you going to give it to? And one of the things that Scripture talks about is that you give to God your best and your first. And we're going to look at that this morning. So let's pray before we go into it. Lord, as we come into this, um, it's your world, it's your planet, it's your universe, it's your money. And we're yours. So where things need to be sorted out, sort them out. Where they need to be clarified, clarify. Where they need to be relined up, relined up. And if we're doing well, may we sense a pat on the back and a blessing from you in your name. Amen. There's a very practical prayer. You like that? All right. So that does raise an issue. How, how do we handle it as a church? And I just want to tell you, um, I've never had to say much. Uh, very seldom in the 10 years I've been here have we ever talked about money. Matter of fact, the board gets on me. You need to push that more. And I'm like, eh. right. And um, but uh, probably the only times I've really talked about is when we've gone into building campaigns or like when we moved from Archbishop Murphy to here and it was. You know, part of the, what we had to do to take that step, we've actually uh, talked about. But the reason I haven't had to do that is because if you're visiting here this morning, you need to know this church is a very sacrificial and generous church. And they just give above and beyond. And it has been an absolute pleasure to not have to talk about that. And so, um, but it's in the stewardship series. We talked about stewardship of your heart. Talked about stewardship of your mind. Last week, uh, Zach talked about the stewardship of worship. Right? Did a great job. By the way, if you've not heard it, if you were gone, I encourage you to go to our website, download the message, and listen to what he said. Uh, so great takeaways. He did a wonderful job. Um, so, but he used this definition from Webster's Dictionary and said this. Worship is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. And that's from Webster's Dictionary in 1828. Right? Sometimes the old definitions are better than the new ones. It says, Worship is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. And I want to suggest this morning that that definition that Zach used last week really sets us up well for defining what appropriate expressions of worship are that come from a grateful heart. In other words, if I really am grateful and love what God has done for me, What's 
our appropriate expressions. And the issue of giving to the Lord is an important topic as we're walking through this series on stewardship. We've talked about responsibility, i.e. God talks, I respond. And then if God asks me to do something that is hard to do, God will equip me to do what he's called me to do. Right? And often he will call you to something before he equips you. That's the nerve-wracking part, right? Because we go, what? I can't do that. Yes, that's exactly the point. All right? Because he wants you to know it's of him and not of himself. So in talking about what I, I want to talk about this morning, I want to take this tack. Walt Isler is on the board, good friend. and He said the best sermon he ever heard about giving was when the pastor got up and said, I don't want a dollar from you. But I do want to tell you what the Bible says about giving. And so I, I like that. I thought that was really good. And so that's my purpose this morning as well, to talk straight to you and to talk, talk straight with you about what the Bible says about giving and its tie to worship. So we're talking about responsibility and responding uh, to the Lord. Giving as worship is a, is a topic that we've got to give some consideration to because it's an expression of my life. Paul is talking to the Corinthian church about this idea, what he actually called this grace of giving. Right? That was the title he applied to it. And he uses this in 2 Corinthians. You can follow along there. It says, the point is this. He's talking to the Corinthian church. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give. And here's the key phrase in this whole thing. If you get nothing else, get this. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Notice it's a heart issue. It's a worship issue. It's not a performance issue. It's not a competition issue. It's not a checking off and getting the gold stars issue. It's an issue of response to the Lord. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Parents, you would understand if kids carry out the chores because they have to. Right? And you have to manage it all the way through. How much fun is that? Okay, it feels the same way to God. He loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that it, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And this end of the passage here is really important because what it says is we will go through different seasons where we need different graces. John and Wanda needed certain grace when impact was planted. He needed another grace when he became chairman. They need another grace when they went through the downfall. He'll need another grace now as they head to Colorado. And they as a family will need a different grace when they head to either Central or South America. Right? And it's pretty obvious that God should do that. But that's also true for us. There are different seasons where we will need different grace. And it says here, if we keep our heart right, if we give the Lord out of an expression of love, He will make grace abound to us so that we will be sufficient in all things at all time that we may be able to do His good work. What He's asked us to do. There's nothing more fulfilling than knowing you're doing what God has asked you to do and you're doing it because you get to, not because you have to. That's a big lesson. So let's look at some lessons though from the Bible on this. Here's history lesson number one. History number one has to do with Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel is the story immediately after Adam and Eve. So you've got creation account, right? You've got the creation account, then you've got Adam and Eve. Then the next story in the Bible is Cain and Abel. And uh, it reads like this. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord on an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. 
And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. If you're following along, the next verse says this. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Now, we don't know exactly why God didn't accept Cain's offering, but did accept Abel's. There is a hint in here in that it says that Abel brought the firstborn of his flock, where it says of Cain, he brought the fruit of the ground. It doesn't say it was the first. Right? So that's possible. A lot of people say, well, it's because Abel brought animals and, and Cain brought uh, the crops. No, there's the wave. Remember the sheath offering we talked about a while back? So the crops are presented. But this idea of it may not have been the first. And he says, God says to him, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over. And here we find, tied right in one of the first uh, stories of the Bible, this whole issue of giving and the issue of a twist in the heart. That something wasn't right. It's between God and Cain. They, it doesn't totally tell us what happened there. But something is right. And God says to Cain, you know, this didn't go well, but you can, of course, correct it. Why are you pouting is basically what he's saying, right? Why are you pouting? Course correct and do it right and it will go well for you. But if you don't, there's a real serious danger here. Um, some contrasts and comparisons. Cain was the oldest. Abel was the youngest, right? Those of you who are oldest, how well does it go when the younger ones in your family show you up? Right? Not so good, right? I'm looking at Heather and Kathy. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, it, it, that doesn't go very well. You know, if you're the oldest, you chafe under that. That's kind of a, a, a tough thing. Um, Cain brought fruit of the ground. Abel brought the first of his flock. There, no regard for Cain's offering. God did regard Abel's offering. God was angry, or Cain became angry, not God. Cain became angry, but Abel's offering was accepted. So God accepted Abel's offering, not Cain's. God let Cain know that he had to correct so it would be acceptable. But then the third observation off of this is that God warned Cain that refusal to respond would be disastrous. In other words, what was the problem? For Cain, it was a worship problem. There was something wrong in the attitude of the heart. What we're dealing with here is not what you're doing, but why you're doing what you're doing. It's the motive. It's the issue uh, behind your actions. What's the motivating force? And God was saying, to Cain, your heart's not right. Your worship's not right. You've got to do this to get it right. And Cain, rather than course correcting, what do we know the story says? It turns around and he killed his brother. Right? If I can't beat you, I kill you. And we have that in our culture today. Right? If I can't win, I'll take you out. And so that's what Cain ends up doing. And so what you have in the creation Genesis account is you have the story of creation, you have Adam and Eve, and then one generation removed from the garden, you have murder enters the human race. And has murder ever left us? And it's a worship issue over giving. That's what people miss in that story. It's a worship issue over giving. They were presenting their offerings to the Lord. All right? So it tells us that that's, that's, that's a, big, a big deal. Um, it also tells us that sin is a big deal. That God said to Cain, sin is trying to master you. It's trying to control you. 
And one of the things that we're strongly warned against in the New Testament uh, over and over is greed, right? Which Colossians 3, if you know that chapter, basically says it's idolatry. And the idea there is that I get greedy and I start to covet or want what's God's. So I figure out a way to jury rig and take what's God's and use it for myself, but still act like I'm worshiping. All right? And the Bible says this is a deadly pattern. And of, of the things that we're strongly encouraged is, is dependence on God and honoring Him with the first fruits of our lives. And this includes the tithe. So here's history lesson number two then. History lesson number two is uh, Abraham. So the story behind this is there's uh, Lot lives in Sodom. He's taken captive by a bunch of kings. Abraham goes after him, defeats him. Um, and, and wins the battle. You can um, look this up in Genesis 14. And, uh, and then when Abram comes back after he won, he's met by this guy named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is one of the trippiest persons in the Bible. I'm serious. They have been arguing about who he actually is for thousands of years. The Jewish scholars couldn't figure it out. The Christian scholars haven't figured it out. I cannot wait to get to heaven and figure out who is Melchizedek actually. All right, you'll get all kinds of opinions on it. But for our purposes this morning, it says this in Genesis 14, starting with verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And it says, Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now this, this phrase here, well, pause for a second. Go back to Melchizedek. Hebrews tells us that the name means king of righteousness, and he is also the king of Salem, which means king of peace. So uh, he is kind of a, um, a prototype or an archetype of a, a Jesus uh, person or figure. In other words, he's a foreshadower. And I just realized all my notes are out of place here. That was great. I got a head cold. I'm just... If I didn't shake your hand, it's not because I'm not being friendly. I just don't want to pass on the blessing to you. And I got tissue in my pocket and I'm ready to go. And so I had wrong references in um, the first service. And now my notes are all out of shape. So I am just dancing here this morning. All right, hang on here a second. Let me get it right. Bye. David. Oh, my goodness gracious. Yeah, we still love you. That's good. All right. Four. There we go. Got him. Awesome. On to what we were saying. Melchizedek. All right. Melchizedek is an archetype or a forerunner of Christ. And the phrase that Abram gave a tenth of everything is really important. In the Expositor's um, Bible Commentary, it's one I use all the time uh, to check this stuff out. It says this about this passage. In the ancient world, it was generally recognized that there was an obligation to pay tithes to important religious functionaries. Isn't that a cool word? Functionary. I said, instead of being the pastor of Northview Community Church, I could be the functionary of Northview Community Church. Where do they come up with words like that? I'm like, that's cool. Anyways, on to more real stuff. So, important people. This implies that a certain subjection on the part of those paying to those to whom the tithe was paid. In other words, in this passage, we know how great Abraham is, right? But it says Melchizedek is greater. So then you go, well, okay, who's that trippy dude? We don't have time for that this morning. But 
What it means is that when Abraham paid a tenth of the plunder, that last word literally means the top of the heap. So in other words, when they would go and conquer kings and then they would get all the plunder, they'd come and pile it up in a heap. And when he gave that to Melchizedek, literally Melchizedek took the top of the pile. The top of the pile means the choicest spoils of war. All right? In other words, in that pile of all that was plundered there, Melchizedek got the best of the plunder, not Abram. Now you think, gee, Abram should have got it because he's the one that fought the war and took all the risk. No, Melchizedek got it. And so this idea here is that um, the best is given to God, right, in terms of an offering. So we use that term, top of the heap. That's where that comes from. So it means the first things off the pile. So the tithe, when you ask, where did this idea of the tithe come from? It comes from this passage right here. The idea of a tenth is given to the Lord comes from this concept right here in Genesis 14 um, in this story of Abraham uh, that God gets the first and the best. Then we go on to our next history lesson, number three. Uh, David buys Aruna's threshing floor. So this is a whole chapter. I'll, this is Reader's Digest version here. So David... Uh, is content, there's no more war, and he decides that he wants to know how many uh, warriors he has, and so he decides to uh, number the fighting men of Israel, which is a no-no because they were supposed to depend on the Lord, not on the numbers they had. But David, like any king, wanted to kind of strut his stuff a little bit and know exactly what he had, and so he goes out to number them, and Job argues with him, his lieutenant, and says, don't do that, that's a bad thing to do. But they forces, David wins out, wins the argument, comes back, they number him, and then in the midst of that, David realizes he's acted very foolishly. Not only foolishly, but he's actually sinned. And um, so God sends the prophet Gad to him and says, okay, you have three choices. I'm glad you repented, here's your three choices. You can have three years of famine, or you can have three months of your enemies chasing and pursuing you. Or you can have three days of plague. Now notice in that, none of those are good choices. Notice it extends. You have three years of famine, three months of your enemies chasing you, or three days of plague. And what it says is David was in grief and agony over what he had done. And he said... I will choose the three days of plague because I would rather be placed in the hands of God than in the hands of man. Some wisdom there, right? God can be merciful. Man often isn't. And so he chose the three days of plague. So the plague breaks out and long, short, uh, 70,000 fighting men die in that short period of time. And David is just grief-stricken. He says, God, these are just sheep. They didn't sin. I sinned. Go against me and my family. And so God tells him, go out. I want you to um, offer sacrifice to me. And so he, where he goes is he sees the angel of the Lord with his sword drawn over the threshing floor of this guy, Aruna. And so David's coming up. Aruna sees him. Aruna runs down, bows to him and says, what can I do for you, O great king? And he says, I, I need to buy your threshing floor from you because I need to build an altar there to offer a sacrifice to stay the plague. And Aruna says, look, you can, have the, you can have the grinding wheel. You can have my oxen for the sacrifice. Here's the yokes and the sledge and all that stuff. You can use that to burn it. I'll give it to you for free. And then David says this, which is uh, really profound. Knowing what he'd done, knowing what happened, the king said to Aruna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. 
I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that have cost me nothing. In other words, one of the great things about David, he was never a freeloader. Okay? He's never just there sitting along letting everybody else pull the load. He was serious about it. He said, no, I, I cannot. I have to pay you for this because I cannot give an offering that costs me nothing. Because he knew what it had cost other people. And so he uh, was given that. He bought the, the threshing floor from Aruna. Interesting about that threshing floor is it was outside the city and it was on the Mount of Moriah, which is the same place that Abraham took Isaac to offer him as a sacrifice to the Lord, where the Lord said, uh, where Abraham said to his son Isaac, when Isaac said, Dad, I, we've got the wood and the fire, where's the lamb for the offering? And Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb, knowing that it was going to be a son. Isaac didn't know that. And then they found the ram in the thicket. That very spot then became the place where David built an altar. And on that spot where David built the altar became the spot where the temple was built and the very place where Jesus himself walked on this earth while he was there. It's a fascinating kind of coincidence, don't you think? All right. So what, are, what do we draw from these? I want to draw some uh, lessons on giving as worship. First lesson is this. We give God the first. A lot of firsts in that sentence. But the idea here is you don't give God seconds, thirds, or fourths, right? The idea, you don't give God the leftovers. You don't pay all your bills and all your stuff and then, oh, I got five bucks back. Okay, God gives that. No, the idea is you, God gets the first, and then after that you figure out how to pay all the rest of the bills. It's an act of worship. In um, Numbers 18, it says this, Talking about the animals fee offered, it says this is also yours. Talking to the Levites, saying you don't get land, you don't get cities. What you get is to serve me, and all Israel will bring you gifts. And so he said the contributions of the gift, all the wave offerings of the people of Israel, I have given them to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. In other words, this is going to happen every month, every year, in perpetuity. It says all the best of the oil and all the best of the wine and the grain. Notice again, the first fruits of what they give to the Lord, I will give to you. The first ripe fruits of all that is in their land, which will bring to the Lord, shall be yours. In other words, the Israelites would collect their crops and they would take the best of it and they would bring it to the Levites as an offering to the Lord. And the Levites lived off the best of the land. I.e. then, they were to be freed from having to do all that other stuff, so they offered all the sacrifices at the tabernacle and then later the temple. They were to be wholly devoted uh, to the Lord. And you'll find all kinds of things went sideways with that. But the idea there is we give the first. The next lesson in giving and worship is the best. You don't just give the first, but you give the best. Often those two go together. But in Leviticus chapter 9, it says, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf or a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings, to sacrifice before the Lord as in a grain offering mixed with oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. In other words, in that culture, in that time, it was an agricultural culture. Agricultural culture and God said, I want you to take these animals. And notice in there that it repeats twice, without blemish. In other words, it couldn't be a blind animal, it couldn't be a lame animal, it couldn't be a damaged animal, it couldn't be a bunch of different things um, on that. Um, 
And it had to be a, a perfect animal. They were to bring that and offer that to the Lord. Now, when you have a flock and you have a whole bunch of sheep or goats or bulls, you have a choice to what you're going to pick from, right? And when you pick, what's your tendency? Are you going to look and say, hey, I'm going to take the best thing and offer that? Because that means that, that ox or sheep or lamb is gone, right? They're given as unto the Lord. Isn't the human tendency, well, these are the best. This one's pretty good. I'll take this one and offer it to the Lord, right? And the Lord says, no, no, you, you have to offer the best to me. Now, Israel got really sloppy on this. Uh, they, they got, um, but they were bad at it, is basically it. Okay, and Malachi, the last, in Malachi, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi offers some stinging rebukes on this. And what the great part of this is, is that we can learn from Malachi and not repeat the same mistakes. In other words, what God's done is recorded the sins of other believers and said, here's where they goofed up and I'm recording it for you. I'm sure they appreciated their stories all written down, right? Wouldn't you love that if it happened to you? But I'm recording that so you don't make the same mistakes. And so the idea here is we can avoid some of the miscues that other believers have done in other areas simply because God has recorded it and um, given us a heads up on it. So there's some very distinct instructions uh, given uh, in this uh, whole thing of giving and giving the first and the best. And so in this, if you look at giving the best right here, the flip is here is that secretly in their heart, they wanted the best. They really didn't want to give it to God. Right? Have you ever coveted what should have been God's and you used it for yourself? Right? There's a lot of ways we can do that. You can do that with money. You can do that with sexuality. You can do that with your time. You can do that with... Right? There's a lot of ways. We can do it. But do you ever covet what's God and take it and use it for yourself? That's the problem that they got into. They secretly coveted the best for themselves. And what should have joyfully been given to God now is given to God under compulsion or under restraint. Doesn't have the same freedom. And God was not happy with that. If you look at Malachi chapter 1, starting with verse 6, it, it says this, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, idea here is if I'm a father and I'm due honor. If I'm a father, where's my honor? You, you can tell this is going south really quick, right? And if I'm a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, well, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, well, well how have we offered polluted food to you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? And God has a tremendous comeback. He says this. He says, present that to your governor and see if he'll accept it. Right? Guys, you ever try to get away with that on an anniversary or a birthday and you, you didn't put much thought into it and you kind of ran in less and you walked in with a vacuum cleaner? Love you. You're first in my heart. Right? How well does that work? Have you ever done that? Now, guys, I'm picking on you gals. We do too, right? But I'm, I'm saying God has a very practical example. You think that's going to fly? Try that with the people around you and your rulers. See if they'd accept it. And the obvious answer is, of course they won't. 
You wouldn't even dare do that. If you wouldn't do that with a governor, why would you do that with me? It's a worship problem. It is not a giving problem. It's a worship problem. And so, if we want God to work in great ways among us, then we must treat Him as great. And one of the ways we do that is we give Him our best. If we want God to break out, if we want God to work, we must give Him our best. We must give Him our best and not our least. The other one is, second lesson off of this is, don't cut corners. All right? In other words, don't skimp, don't cheat, don't be stingy, don't rationalize. You ever rationalize? Well, yeah, but, you know, there's a lot of complicated... We say what? It's complicated, right? And, and I, I had it, but I'll give it back, I, you know, kind of thing. Um, we, we get caught into that, that sort of thing. Again, in, in Malachi, and this time we're in Malachi chapter 3, starting with verse 6, it says... For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? That we are not consumed even today because God does not change. That's a great thing. That verse alone you could preach a whole message off of. From the days of your father you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. And then they come back with this question. Well, how have we robbed you? This is called playing dumb. In case you, if you've got children, you've never seen this happen before, this is called playing dumb. All right? How have we, we don't know God. Oh my goodness, how have we robbed you? God says, in your tithes and contributions. Boom, boom. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now remember, this is Israel. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And here's where this tied in. If they didn't bring their food and give it to the Levites, then the Levites had to go out and work. And if they had to go out and work, then worship wasn't being offered. Right? The whole chain broke down. And we don't have sheep and goats today, and we don't have a temple today. But when giving stops, the whole thing begins to break down. Right? Same, Same end result. God says this, Put me to the test says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. That's an amazing promise, but it has to do with giving God our best and giving God our first. The blessing is tied. He says if we don't do that, then he said to Israel, we're under a curse with that. What's really behind that? Here's what's really behind that. Behind that, they got tired of serving the Lord. Why did they get tired of serving the Lord? Another question behind the original question. Well, they got tired of serving the Lord because I think they, like us, often look at the Christian life or got in the Christian life and said, hey, everybody else is chasing the dollar and all this stuff, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to come over here and I'm going to serve the Lord. But you know what? The Lord's going to pour out the blessing on me so there's no more need. And I'm actually going to come around this way and it's going to look stupid, but I'm going to wind up ahead of these other people and I'm going to have more stuff than them. So neener, 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 I win. And it has occurred to most of us that we're not winning. And we're looking and going, okay, not only are they not doing, but it kind of seems God like the sinners are prospering. They seem to be getting way ahead, right? Seem to be like doing, like, have you watched the football salaries lately? I mean, I like football, but seriously? Like, 
wow, I could use a few of those shekels, right? I'm thinking, how is it that I'm a pastor for the Lord and, and, and they make $48 million? Wow, there's a dissonance there. Okay, if you don't feel it, I do. Hello? Stop acting so holy. God, oh, not me, Steve. I'm fine. Yeah. All right? But, you know, we look at that, and part of it is we had this paradigm, comes from Psalms and Proverbs. If I do right, I'm blessed. If I sin, I'm cursed. And so we expect them to be doing bad and us to be doing good, and we struggle with that. By the way, Psalm 73, if you've ever wrestled with it, Psalm 73, look at it this week. Go through it. It's a, 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 a poignant um, take on this particular argument that we're talking about right now. But what was behind is that is they just grew weary. And once they grew weary and said, it's not benefiting me, I'm not winning, then why should I keep doing this stuff anymore? Look at what they say in uh, Malachi here. Because um, here's the third lesson. Don't grow weary or despise the work of the Lord. Malachi 3.3, 3, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. Now that's something. You know, I hear you talking and your words are hard against me. If a person said that to you, you'd go, well, wait a minute, what? Hang on, talk to me. What, what have I said that's hard? God's saying this to them. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, well, how have we spoken against you? You have said it's vain to serve the Lord. It's vain to serve God. You don't get ahead. You don't win. You don't. Now here's the point. Let's say it's fall, all right, and it's a Sunday. So football's rolling. On that particular Sunday, Seahawks and everybody else included, how many people are in stadiums on Saturday and Sunday? College football and how many people? Multiple, multiple millions, right? How many are in church on Sunday? Millions, but not so many, right? So you would look at it and any thinking person is going, God's lost. It's over. God's not winning. And here's what we do. We go, you know what? I think I agree with them because this doesn't look like it's working and it looks like this is working, so I'm going to jump ship and join with them because I want to be on a winning team. Now, stop for a second. Number one, God does not look at things the way we look at things. What looks like winning may not be. What's popular isn't always right and what's right isn't always popular. All right, you got to remember that. And number two, always, always remember this. All the cards are not played yet. Okay? All the cards aren't played yet. There's a lot of cards that God holds in His hand and He hasn't told us all of them and they are yet to be played out. He has not lost. But when we become covetous, when we become greedy and we start taking from God for ourselves because we want to be like the world, that's where we're busted. That's a worship issue. Because now what we're saying, God is not great enough to give my best and first. I will give my best and first to the world. Because that's who I really will spend my time with and I'll give the greatness to. That's this particular dilemma here that they're looking at. Look at what it says here. What is the profit of keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed and evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. One of the things that's killing us is the lack of justice in our culture. Have you notice these murder trials and when they happen, it's not till like 10 years later you actually come to a verdict. And people are going, man, everybody's getting away with stuff and, and doing this kind of stuff. And they're, they're, they're saying the arrogant people are now blessed, the godly people are now cursed, 
and it's not working out. What that really is, is a problem with this. Disappointment with God. Let's call it for what it is. Disappointment with God. God has not done what I wanted Him to do for me. Now, when we became believers, was that ever in the contract? That when I pray, by the way, you sign up to be a Jesus person. Thank you, Steve, very much. And in that, every time you pray, God will do exactly for you what you want. Can you find that chapter or verse in the Old or New Testament? No, the last I read is that there would be a cross and that you had to pick that thing up every day. And I'm amazed, 30 years later, that thing's getting heavier, not lighter. Man, I'm telling you. Don't grow weary. Uh, It goes on in another part of Malachi here in Malachi chapter 2. It says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied Him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and He delights in them, or by asking, Where is the God of justice? And when we start to ask those questions, that's a faith issue. That's a belief issue. When we start to ask those questions, we begin to turn our focus and go this way. As we turn our focus focus and go this way, what happens to our giving? It drops off, right? Cause and effect. Why does it drop off? It doesn't drop off because we have less to give. It drops off. Why? Because I've secretly stopped worshiping. I want to come look like I still belong, but I stopped a long time ago. Howie Hendricks is a great old preacher. He comes out of Texas and Dallas Theological Seminary. If you don't know him, you should listen to him. Uh, Very pithy and wisdom sayings and kind of stuff. But he said, uh, just show me your checkbook. Now, the problem today is you can't do that with kids because they don't have checkbooks, right? They don't even know what a Rolodex is, poor things. And, uh, but the idea there is show me your wallet, show me your finances, show your, your financial statement, and I will show you what you worship, right? Because your heart follows, your wallet follows what you worship. And so there's this extrapolation of do I treat God as great and do I treat him as awesome and the fear that's due him and in that do I give him the best and do I give him the first? Right? That's what the Bible's saying about giving. Is do you give him the best and do you give him the first? If not, that's a real place to focus back on where's my heart and worship towards him. Uh, Stanley Kantz, who, who mentored me and he's now in the Lord, he's now in heaven with the Lord and uh, be thrilled to see him again one day. But when he taught me this about tithing, he said, okay, he gave me a dime and said, how much would you tithe off? I said, well, a penny. And then he gave me a dollar. How much? Is that? Okay, 10 cents. And he gave me, you know, he went up to a hundred bucks. He said, no, I don't have more, but a million. And he went through the 10. And he says, I said, I got the million. He said, a hundred thousand. He said, okay, good. You got that. He says, no, here's the deal. Always give a little bit more. So that the Lord knows you love him, not because you have to. He says, you, Steve, I'll tell you something true about God. You can never outgive God. And I want to tell you that the way God gives is mysteriously um, wonderful compared to the way the world gives. And there are places I can look back, I have no idea how we made it through or how I made it through or how we made it through as a couple, and yet we're still here and still working. That's a sustaining, miraculous grace of Jesus, and it can be multiplied over and over again. With the world, once you spent it, it's gone, it's done. Right? So... When it comes to stewardship, what we're talking about, a responsibility, when God speaks to us, we respond. And part of that expression of responding is how we give. Again, as a church, we've been sacrificial. We've been generous. It's been an awesome deal here. This is something that we probably are talking about improving on. 
not getting to know or learn. But it's, it's a great word. We're going to come back to some more things next week that are extrapolations out of this and go to some of the New Testament stuff. But let's pray this morning, all right? Father, as we think about this, wrestle with it, it's a clear word. It's a precise word. Um, and it strikes right at the core of probably where the fall runs in our heart and where redemption runs in our heart as to whether life's about us or life's about you. It's a, it's a practical, practical thing. The one who gives that life, though, or gives insight to that is you in your spirit, not me. And, uh, Father, where uh, improvement needs to be made, may there be improvement. Where uh, rebuke needs to be made, may there be rebuke. Where blessing needs to be given, may there be blessing. And may that be done in your spirit. And we pray this in your name. Amen.